Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. Today's episode features an interview with two young social justice leaders, Maurice Mitchell and Rana Epting, heading up respectively the National Working Families Party and Move On, two of the country's foremost social justice organizations. They see themselves as part of the innovative and bold national work being elaborated, particularly by young leaders of color and their organizations to test new strategic approaches and win campaigns for racial and economic justice. They are joined in conversation by Gara LaMarche, president of the Democracy Alliance and senior fellow at the City College of New York's Colin Powell School. We're excited about the ways in which this discussion explores solidarity as it's being advanced and reinvented by emerging leaders of color. On every issue of this moment, leaders of color are leading the way and pointing the way, and we believe it's time to acknowledge that and support them properly. That's why we're engaged in this work to support leadership here at the City University of New York. The two folks who are on the call with us today, Rana and uh, Epting and Maurice Mitchell, are people whose work I've really admired, particularly in the last year. And they're people I admire partly because of the tremendous sensitivity and style of their leadership, which has, which is grounded in social movements and has enormous respect for collective action. They're really forging paths and demonstrating new forms of leadership. And we're having this series to throw a spotlight partly on the issues that we're going to be talking about today, but with a lens to the leadership aspects of it, because that's what we're trying to hone in on. So what I want to say is that both Rana and Maurice Mitchell have in recent years risen to the leadership of broad-based, multi-issue, social justice-focused and politically engaged membership organizations. I know our audience is interested, before we get into the challenges of the past year, in hearing about your own path to leadership. For you, Rana, it was SEIU, the Public Service Employees Union, the Bus Project and Wellstone Action. For you, Maurice, through Citizen Action, the Long Island Progressive Coalition, student organizing, and your work on the ground in Ferguson after the murder of Mike Brown. So I'd like to start by asking you each to say a little bit about your journeys, about your mentors, and about what you learned along the way that prepared you for the challenges of the last year. Rana? Great. Thank you so much, Gara. Thank you for having me. There's a lot of expectations, and I don't think it's a burden either, but I do think um, it can be if you don't orient yourself correctly to this opportunity in front of you. I sometimes 
have very high expectations of my own leadership. And I think that the expectation out there is finally we have a leader of color and finally this organization can be equitable. That's the solution. But actually, there is no clear pathway. There is no clear roadmap. People have told me there is, and I just don't believe them. (laughs) Everything is a matter of nuance. Trying to be an equitable space, trying to drive campaigning equitably is a matter of nuance. And it's a matter of perspective and where people sit and what they're seeing versus what somebody else is seeing. So there is just, you know, being a leader, period, means you're subjecting yourself to constant judgment, which I'm fine with. But the additional layer of judgment here, it's finally where you have a leader of color and the expectations I think are higher around what that means for the kind, how you do the work and the kind of work you do, where actually we're struggling with very similar challenges that our predecessors did in terms of how do you create a healthy work and culture? How do you actually drive campaigning that lifts up equity in a very inequitable world? within elections that are the least equitable <laughs> practices in our country. So we're, we're navigating those same challenges. And my hope is that I navigate it with the qualities that make me me from my upbringing, which is the, the ability to listen and understand various perspectives and bring people together around a shared purpose. You're each the first leaders of color in multiracial organizations, both of which are relatively young institutions, just a few decades old. So can you say a little bit about how you're navigating those dynamics? You want to take this one first, Maurice? (laughs) Well, I'm navigating it with nuance and with compassion. (laughs) And, you know, as you do everything, (laughs) as I I attempt to do. So I, I would say this, that, yeah, the Working Families Party has 20 years of history that predates me. And I inherited it from a founding director. I'm significantly younger than founding director. I'm the first leader of color taking this role. And when I took the position, I understood that I would be inheriting the title for my predecessor, but the role was something that I would have to reimagine, right? And so that prospect of reimagining the role and reimagining the institution in this particular political context, right? So working families came up in the context of the Clinton years in in the late 90s. And this is a very different political context. What type of transformation is required in order to make sure that this institution and my role reflect that? So that's the question that I always ask myself. And to me, it's a very, continues to be a very exciting question to to be inside of. The second thing is, I'm very much aware that as a leader of color, I don't have the privilege of being an individual, right? So I'm representing all types of politics, all types of people. I'm representing the idea of black leadership. And so that's very, I'm very aware of that. And it can, it could feel like a burden. I choose to use it as something that motivates me to take my job on, not just as like a singular careerist sort of effort, but at something as something that will potentially add to the conversation about what Black leadership is and what it means for Black leaders to transform institutions, which means I'm not simply comfortable with taking the institution, sort of being the custodian of the the institution and just kind of gradually moving it from point A to point B. I see myself both as a change maker externally, but also I see myself as an agent of change internally. 
And I spent a lot of my time transforming the institution. I think one of my concerns was, or one of my, one of my primary concerns was to, to ensure that black leadership actually has a quality that's different and that that shows up in the life of the organization. And it's something that, again, you could look at it as a burden. I choose to look at it as something that motivates me. And so that's, that's been my experience. It's definitely been a challenge because there are all types of cynicisms attached to transitions from white leadership to leadership of color that you have to encounter. And that, you know, I encounter every day in my job, but it's nothing new. I've, I've grown up black in this society. So I was born on a Monday, but not last Monday. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, it's something that I think I was well prepared to deal with. And it's, again, it's something that motivates me. Thanks, Maurice. That was beautiful to share. So uh, yeah, it's similar to Maurice. MoveOn is over 20 years old. It was born in the Clinton era as well. And I inherited an organization, not from its founding ED, but from a legacy of white leadership. And my predecessors did an incredible job to, tr- to, to really take MoveOn from a small organization, grow it, and infuse very massive commitment to equity internally and externally in our work. And I was an internal candidate. So I think there are challenges in coming up into leadership when you're inheriting an organization you know intimately well. And so a couple of responses to the question of how do I navigate this as the first woman of color, person of color to lead MoveOn. So MoveOn is a multiracial, multi-issue, massive organization. We have over 10 million members all throughout the country And we're different than WFP in the sense that we don't have state chapters. We don't have staff in state. All of our staff are virtual. We've always been virtual, even before the pandemic. We have a model where we support our members to take leadership in their community to organize for change. And our members can look like my mother, an Iranian older woman in a small Northern California town. It can look like Gera in New York City or wherever you might be living right now. So getting into the next question and the kind of heart of the, uh, of the conversation today, which is framed by the notion of crisis leading in a time of crisis, I want to say up front that I understand and I want to acknowledge that when you lead social justice organizations, when you lead racial justice organizations, you are leading in, a, in effect in a time of permanent crisis. So I get that. But the last year has been an unusual, perfect storm of cascading crisis. We had the pandemic, which laid bare the cost of racialized capitalism and called for fresh approaches to electoral engagement in the most consequential election of our lifetimes, the murders of George Floyd and so many others and the uprisings which followed, and the attempted coup uh, following Trump's loss to Biden, which made the post-election period a frontal assault on American democracy. So each of your organizations played individually and together and with a lot of other groups, key roles in responding to these crises. And I want to ask you each about how you approach that. How did you respond to these public health, racial, social justice, and democracy crises while under lockdown? What were the key assets that you brought to it? And what were the key challenges? We quickly came to this understanding that we're in a moment of deep intersecting crises and that we, we couldn't use our work plan our, our pre-pandemic work plan. And so we had to reimagine how we wanted to show up. And we, we, we took a few steps back instead of like engaging in rapid response, which is kind of like a, a muscle that we flex a lot. We, we did some study, we did some collective study 
And the end result became our sort of North Star, which was this document called the People's Charter, which lays out a pretty ambitious multi-plank roadmap out of crisis. And then based on that analysis, we determined how we wanted to organize. We already were like using a lot of digital tools, not as not as advanced as move on, but we were using peer-to-peer text and other things. And so we leaned on that and we basically made our entire staff into digital organizers. And we put as the as the central thesis of, of the work that we're doing, this idea that in a moment where people are experiencing such, like every single one of us are, is experiencing in some ways such a deep crisis, that this is an opportunity to engage people on a popular level on some very, very basic fundamental ideas. What is my relationship to this economy? What should an economy do? What's my relationship to other people, especially when many of us are in isolation and also it flipped on its, on its head where the value of, an, of a, an economy comes from. Most people would agree now in, in this COVID reality that somebody who works in the food chain, a sanitation worker, a frontline health, uh, healthcare worker, they provide a intrinsic value to our society. And I think most people would argue that a hedge fund manager, I don't know, maybe, maybe not, probably not, right? And so we live in a different moment. And so that's an opportunity to engage in mass political education. So we started leaning into political education so that people on a popular level could begin to have this conversation around what is this world? And then, and then based on all of the suffering and all of the martyrs and all of the people who continue to suffer that, that are still alive, how do we ensure that we haven't experienced all this for not? How do we determine through our organizing that we leave this crisis resolute to build a more resilient world where when we face other crises, we won't fall apart? A lot of move on staff have small kids. It's a great place to work if you have a family because you can work from home. And so, you know, our capacity is to just do our traditional campaigning. We're vastly under-resourced. And when I looked around and saw my friends challenged with the same thing and combining that with the heightened stakes of the moment for us to put pressure on Congress to deliver for the people and not for Wall Street in this economic and health crises. Maurice and myself and several others through the Fight Back Table decided this was a moment that let's find the folks we can that don't have small kids at home or don't have someone to take care for or have time on their hands and pull together our collective power to drive campaigning around the pandemic together. The other thing we were seeing that led us to standing up this campaign was that there had been three stimulus, three, two or three stimulus packages of billions of dollars that had passed and we had gotten no progressive priorities out of them. Money had gone to, that was meant for small businesses was going to corporate America. There was no direct stimulus checks. There was just massive misuse of government funding. And our organizations up until that point had been lobbying Speaker Pelosi and minority leader at the time, Schumer, on our priorities, but we'd been organizing against one another unintentionally. And so in this moment where we knew the movement was operating at half capacity, and we knew that it was harder to campaign and make our voices heard because we couldn't leave our homes 
We couldn't show up in the streets. We couldn't demand something physically with our bodies. And because the, the stakes were so high, we decided to create this coronavirus rapid response campaigning hub. And it took a while to get us started, but it did result in what I think a very successful package called the HEROES Act, which passed the House, got stalled in McConnell's Senate, but now is embodied in a lot, most if not all of it is embodied in this coronavirus American rescue package that we're seeing being debated in the Senate this week. So that was one way that we responded, recognizing we can't be all things. So how do we create and leverage our power? And that took us into the summer and the protests that we saw on the streets and in the movement for Black Lives. And, and I'm so grateful for Maurice's leadership and so many others at this moment. And organizations like Move On, we're multi-issue, multiracial. We are not a movement. We are an organization. We are infrastructure we were wrestling with how do we show up and how do we flank this very live moment in our country that has the potential to shift what's possible significantly. And so we, we mobilized our members to, to show up if they were comfortable to practice social, uh, physical distancing, take hand sanitizer with you, raise money for the effort and more. But we really took the leadership of those in the BLM community seriously and tried to just hear from them and say, how can organizations like Move On and others be helpful and do that? What is the room and what do you, what's your feeling about building teams that include people who don't come to social justice work through traditional or professionalized or higher education routes? Oh, I'll, I'll be really brief with this. Look, I, 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 don't think you, I don't think you learn the fundamentals of organizing in the academy. It has to be applied. One of the really, really cool things about working at Working Families is that a significant percentage of the staff came through the canvas, right? Including the senior staff people. I, I would like, if anybody wanted to become part of this movement and find employment in this movement, I would say find a canvas. Most people do not require people to have any advanced degrees to sign up and, and be canvassers. Find a canvas, that's such a great proving ground for organizing. It's really hard work, but I mean, there's so many lessons in it. And, you know, I mean, right now we're in COVID, so there's not a lot of door-to-door canvassing, but there are, there's still tele-canvassing and there will be door-to-door canvassing where people, where you're knocking on doors and you're having hundreds, thousands of, of interactions with people. There's, there's a lot to learn there. It can be sort of a very intense uh, uh, environment, but I would argue that what you learn on a canvas, those, those lessons are indispensable. One of my first jobs was a canvassing job with the Pergs when I was in college. It was really hard. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was really, really hard, but it was, it was indispensable. Theory and ideology and all of this other, it's great. If, if somebody was coming from outside of any of those traditional places and wanted to immediately start on the ground floor canvas. Totally agree with Maurice. And I'll say whether or not you have a degree is completely irrelevant, in my opinion, about whether or not you'll be successful and welcomed and loved in the social justice community. I mean, the school of life experience is vastly more valuable in this work than a graduate degree. And I say that from experience. I was in the social justice movement And then I went to law school and I came back and I was no better an organizer than I was before, but I had a law degree. I often coach young adults that are in the movement 
that want to advance their careers in the movement and want to go to law school. And I asked them, well, why are you going to law school? Is it just to have the degree? Do you think like, what are you trying to do? Well, I want to be a campaign manager. Then don't go to law school, go volunteer on a campaign, go canvas and knock on doors, go make phone calls. That is some of the best experience you can have because ultimately what we're doing is we're organizing and building people power to make people's lives better. So what type of expertise is most important there? Life, you understand what people's lives are like if you have perspective from your own and you bring that and you root that in, in your organizing, that is incredibly powerful, more powerful than a degree. Of course, degrees are great, people should go to school. I'm not, not arguing against it, but it's not a prerequisite to be part of this work at all. Thank you, Maurice Mitchell. Thank you, Ron Epting. I think that what we are trying to build uh, at CUNY it draws on a lot of the insights that you've talked about and aims to really lift up the lessons that we have here and build a, uh, help build leaders for the future and learn from them in ways that will further transform the society as each of you has done so beautifully in your own work. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.